Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good evening. It warms my heart very, very much tonight to have Brother Bill Eads lead the prayer. Brother Bill Eads was the director of the camp that I worked at for years in Knoxville when I was preaching there locally. And I learned to love him, respect him, and admire him greatly. And uh, he was willing to uh, allow me to have a part in that camp on an annual basis. And he knew me when I was a skinny boy. And uh, certainly uh, he meant a lot to my family then and still does to this day. And it also warms my heart to see a young man lead us so well in song Uh, In fact, the purpose of young camps like we had is to prepare individuals for the future. And someday, you young people are going to be the ones who are directing camps, running things, and leading Bible studies, and uh, so many different things that you'll be doing, some of which you're already doing, no doubt, as we saw tonight. And so, I'm uh, very encouraged. We've had a great day. My family has. We went to the Space Center today. And it just strikes me that uh, if I stood here tonight and told you that everything that I saw today, I've concluded just happened as a result of an accidental Big Bang explosion, you'd laugh me out of the building, wouldn't you? The complexity and design that it took to build those ships, those rocket ships, uh, shows the importance of designer, designing And the very brains that designed those very complicated rocket ships had a designer also, did they not? And those brains are even more impressive than the computers and the ships that they built. And thanks be to God for his amazing majesty and greatness. You can't visit a place like we visited today without being reminded of that as well. Now, I would like for you to take just a moment and consider what it would have been like to be a member in one of the seven churches of Asia in the first century, and word circulates and there's a great buzz going through the congregation because you've been told that a letter has been sent that John received from Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and that John is the author of this letter, and that letter is going to be read this Sunday at the services. Can you imagine if that were the case, how you would be so excited and filled with anticipation? What is this letter going to say? Will this letter acknowledge some of the difficulties that we are facing here in the seven churches of Asia? And you'll notice that uh, the list of churches there is given here on the left side of the screen, and the letter could have easily circulated in the order in which they're found in Scripture is the order in which they're positioned there, and the letter could have gone from one place to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. They didn't have printing presses to do massive printing jobs back then, and so there was oftentimes a circulation of the inspired document. And so this would have been a magical amazing time for them, and I don't mean magical in some sort of witchcraft sort of way, I mean uh, an amazing time is a better description of it. They would have enjoyed it so much knowing what Jesus had to say, and what John saw was what was written down in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. God gave that book to show unto his servants the things, notice, which must shortly come to pass. Now, I'm not trying to frustrate anyone tonight with the speed that I'm going to be going at. I'm trying to get as much material in as as I can, and last night was a great description of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to just give you a a lean, mean approach to the big picture, and we're going to be very big picture oriented tonight as well. You know, you rinse the dishes 
uh, first, generally speaking, and then you maybe focus on the rest of the cleaning later. There's so much more to learn about the book of Revelation than we'll be able to cover tonight. But I'm going to sometimes just put up a passage for a second or two with a spotlighted phrase for this purpose to have that theme just keep jumping out at you and jumping out at me so that it floods our minds so much that we can't be so easily led astray by those in the future about what the real theme of the book of Revelation is. This is a book that was written to the seven churches of Asia, as we've already noted, about things that generally speaking would shortly come to pass. But notice that's not the last time that you see a time lock of sorts put on the book of Revelation. Revelation 1 verse 3, the time is at hand. It's ever near is the point that he's making. At the very last chapter of the book, Revelation 22 and verse number 6, notice the last statement says, the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show to his servants the things which must shortly be done. And then verse 10 says again, for the time is at hand. So if you were listening to this book being read in your hearing as a member of one of the first century churches of Asia, and you heard this throughout the book, threaded throughout the book, in the first chapter and the last chapter, what would you conclude? Would you conclude, oh, I know what he's saying. There are going to be helicopters in the Vietnam War someday. Would you be thinking that, dear friend? I have a loved one who was having a conversation with me years ago and certainly meant well, but he said, I think one of the most amazing things about the book of Revelation is that it like prophesies helicopters in the Vietnam War. And I was trying in a nice way to point out lovingly that, you know, those people were suffering at that time. Tell me, Uh, How would knowing that, oh, I feel so much better now knowing there will be helicopters in the Vietnam War. They didn't know what a helicopter was. They'd never heard of Vietnam. And certainly they knew nothing about the Vietnam War. And so sometimes people today get carried away with the idea that the book of Revelation is about predicting things for our day and time when the bulk of it had to do with predicting things that would happen for them. In fact, it was signified. We sometimes say signified, of course, but it was signified unto his servant John, signified by his angel to his servant John, meaning it was given in signs and symbols. Consequently, we would expect a lot of figurative language. There are ways that you and I speak today that are very symbolic. If we come back and say, there must have been a thousand people at the DMV today when I was trying to renew my license. You don't literally mean a thousand. You mean, what, 999, right? No. It seems that way sometimes. My mother used to say that phrase that I'd have also said to you, I don't know, son, if I've told you once, I've told you what? A thousand times. And so those were expressions that were not literal, but were certainly understandable. And the book of Revelation is a record of what John saw by the revelation of Jesus Christ who provided it for him. And as we noted, it was specifically directed to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he lists those churches in verse 11 in order, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now here's the question that I was alluding to earlier. What did the book of Revelation mean to the first century reader? W.B. West wrote a book some years ago that had a great title, uh, seeing the book of Revelation through first century glasses. And that is a great concept to try to put yourself in that time, in that culture, in that present experience of suffering and persecution, and to try to find some meaning and comfort in this message. So did they understand the book of Revelation to be referring to events and people and places and personalities 20 centuries removed from them? Now, one of the things that we know is that John was a, quote, companion in tribulation 
with the brethren in those churches. They were suffering. John wasn't the only one who was suffering. In fact, he mentions, I'm a companion in tribulation, meaning you're going through troubles and trials. I'm going through them also. And so we need some comfort. And he was writing to give that. Now, why did they need comfort? Look at their suffering. In Revelation 6 and verse 9, where do we see God's saints depicted in Revelation 6, 9? They're depicted in this passage under the altar. And what had happened to them? They'd been slain for the word of God. The reason they were under the altar is they'd been martyred. They'd been slain for the word of God. And we see them crying with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? This is talking about those who are suffering at that point in time. There are principles that we can learn for our day and time from that, but let's not forget the primary sufferers were those who are going through these moments of martyrdom. Now let's talk very quickly about the date and the overall meaning. Now some would say, and I say this, some good brethren, very, very good brethren that I have the utmost respect for, would say that uh, this book should be dated prior, just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and that the book itself has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, I mentioned to you last night, Matthew 24 is certainly about that in the first part of Matthew 24. And so it's not impossible that another part of the Bible could also be about that. But uh, I'm not necessarily persuaded that that is the case. In fact, there are other good brethren who say that the book should be dated around AD 96, that the thrust of the book has more to do with the persecution brought on not by the Jewish authorities, but by the time John wrote, by Roman authorities. That Rome and the Roman Empire were persecuting the church and that this book was written to comfort them. Here's the bottom line. I could spend uh, the rest of our time tonight debating the pros and cons of each position as far as the date is concerned and throw in some others that some have suggested as well. And we could spend our time tonight speculating and trying to figure out the precise meaning of every symbol in the book of Revelation. And if you came tonight hoping that we would identify the precise meaning of every symbol in the book of Revelation, I'm certainly going to be disappointing you tonight. Number one, because I don't know what every single symbol in the book of Revelation would have exactly meant to them. They certainly understood what it was meant to be as it was explained to them. You and I can read it and gather a big picture understanding, though we may not know every symbol. But let me quickly note this. Brother Alan Hires uh, used to tell a story, and probably still does at times when he preaches about this subject. I heard him mention a situation where a preacher from the Lord's church was having a discussion with a friend who was a preacher in a denominational church, and they were discussing the book of Revelation. And his friend said to the preacher from the Lord's church, well, what does this symbol here in the book of Revelation mean? And he freely confessed, I, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what it means. And oh, his friend guffawed and laughed and said, so what? You don't know what it means. If you don't know what it means, how do you know it doesn't mean what I say it means? If you don't even know what it means. And at that very moment, the preacher from the Lord's church pointed to a woman down on the sidewalk walking by. And he said, hey, hey, look, there goes your wife. And the denominational preacher looked out and saw that woman and said, well, that's not my wife. The preacher from the Lord's church said, well, who is she? He said, I have no idea who she is. And he said, well, if you don't know who she is, how do you know she's not your wife? Ah, <laughs> oh. listen, I do not know much about cars or engines or things of that nature. I stand here before you tonight confessing that my mom and dad bought my wife a tool set for Christmas one year. They bought it for her. They knew I would not know what to do with it. So as uninformed as I am about car engines. You bring me a 
car part and tell me, identify this, BJ, what is this part? If it's not an air filter or a spark plug, I'm probably way out of my league. So I'm looking at it, and I say, well, I don't know what it is, but I know it's not a basketball. I know it's not a baseball. It's not a football. It's not a sewing machine cabinet. I don't have to know exactly what something is to know what it could not be because it doesn't meet the characteristics of becoming that thing that someone might claim that it is. And so uh, these symbols from the book of Revelation, though I may not know what every one of them means down to the gnat's whisker, I can certainly know what the big theme of the book of Revelation is. Our time will be better spent in these few minutes focusing on the main theme of the book, victory in Jesus, because ultimately it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Jewish authorities persecuting the church or Roman authorities persecuting the church or any other government from the past that you want to plug into this, the bottom line would still remain no matter who's doing this to the church. The good news is Christ ultimately wins the victory. Those in Christ ultimately come out on top. We win. And that's the message of the book of Revelation. I want to give you three quick points tonight, as quickly as I can make them at least. The opposition. As you and I study the book of Revelation, who are the uh, individuals that make up the opposition? The first is Satan himself. You know what he's called in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 39? He's called the enemy. And he's definitely that in the book of Revelation. He's described as such in chapter 12. In fact, Revelation 12, 7 through 10 gives the following description. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Keep that in mind. The dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. Now this is where in the next verse I absolutely love what the book of Revelation does on occasions. It will come right out and tell us what a symbol means so there's no room for speculation. And uh, this dragon, who's the dragon of Revelation twelve seven? I don't have to wonder. Because verse 9 tells me, the dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So the dragon represents the devil and Satan. And notice he's deceiver. He's a deceiver. He deceives the whole world. He's cast out into the earth. His angels are cast out with him. So he's a fighter. He is an adversary. That's what the word Satan really means. He's a deceiver, and he's an accuser. Look at verse 10 of this text, Revelation 12 and verse 10. I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And so this accuser, is also a destroyer. He seeks to destroy God's people. In Revelation chapter 13, we see that uh, the things discussed in chapter 12 are going to continue on. And in chapter 12, verse 13, the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, and so, who's the dragon? Satan. He persecutes the woman which brought forth the man-child, The dragon is wroth with the woman and makes war, went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Well, who would that be? Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible teaches us that Satan has his ministers. That's what the 2 Corinthians 11, 13 calls them. These false apostles, deceitful workers who transform themselves into the apostles of Christ It's not amazing that that happens, sad, but it's not a marvelous, amazing thing like, wow, I couldn't believe, who saw that coming? Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He tries to appear as something harmless when in fact he is harmful. It's no great thing then if his ministers also be transformed. They look like ministers of righteousness, but their end is going to be according to their works. 
Now, the book of Revelation has ministers of Satan depicted in it. And one of them is called the beast. In Revelation 13 and verse number 4, this beast representing the ruler of the nation that was persecuting uh, God's people, empowered by the dragon, Satan. These individuals, or this beast, was worshipped. They worshipped the dragon first, which gave power to the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, who's like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? They thought they were certainly unable to conquer him, and so they revered him instead to try to keep him from doing anything harmful to them. This beast, this ruler, this emperor, whoever it is that uh, you want to plug into that equation, made war with the saints attempting to overcome them. According to verse 7, it was given to him, the beast, to make war with the saints. When you read the book of Daniel, by the way, you'll see ruling officials of different empires referred to as different kinds of beasts that come up out of the sea. So this is apocalyptic language with, with which the Hebrew mind, the Jewish mind, would have been very familiar. So the, we know who the opponents are, Satan and his ministers, the beast, etc. Now let's look secondly at the obstacles that are before the saints of God in the book of Revelation. Number one, the devil is depicted as using false doctrine as a weapon to try to destroy and damn the souls of those in the churches of Asia. He's still trying to do that today, by the way. Uh, the church at Ephesus, for example. Revelation 2 and verse 2. You've tried them which say they are apostles and are not. One thing the church at Ephesus was commended for doing was opposing those who were false apostles. And they also had this going for them. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Notice it did not say they hated the Nicolaitans. They hated their actions, their deeds, which Jesus says, I also hate. I don't like what they're doing. And so what were some of the obstacles? Well, the church at Pergamos, Revelation 2, 14 and 15, had some there that held the doctrine of Balaam, which uh, it takes us all the way back in our minds to the Old Testament story where Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel so they would sin and God would punish them. And uh, that is exactly what we see happening there in the Old Testament book of Numbers. Now, he says in Revelation 2 to the church at Pergamos, you've got some there that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. He said, I hate that doctrine. It is a false doctrine. So Satan was very busy in the seven churches of Asia trying to spread false doctrine through those ministers who taught it. Thyatira is the third church that we see facing that kind of opposition and obstacle. You suffer. He says, you know what you're doing there? You're tolerating Jezebel. You need to quit tolerating Jezebel. What do you mean tolerate? Jezebel died in the Old Testament. But uh, look, we know who Jezebel was. That's why most folks never do hear of a parent or a mom or dad naming their child Jezebel. We know too much about her to want to give a name like that to our daughter. Jezebel uh, was someone that is called a prophetess there in the church in Revelation 2 at Thyatira to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And Jesus says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she didn't do it. She didn't repent. So he was going to cast her into a bed and then to commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Notice great tribulation is something that can be experienced at various places and times. See that. Notice, except they repent of their deeds, they will experience this. And I'll kill her children with death. And he says, I'm really going to give unto every one of you according to your works. But he says to the rest of you in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan, I'm going to put upon you none other burden. And so we see the obstacles of false doctrine. Now see how the beast becomes involved in this. I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. 
He's got two horns. Oh, he looks like a docile little lamb. But he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the power of the first ruling official before him, causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And this reminds us that Jesus had said, beware of false prophets. They're going to come to you in sheep's clothing. They'll look so harmless. But inwardly, there will be definitely much more dangerous than you see. They're ravening wolves in Matthew seven fifteen, and by their fruits ye shall know them. And so false doctrine was definitely a major problem. But notice, as we've already alluded to, physical suffering and persecution was a big obstacle for first century saints in the churches of Asia. We've already noted Revelation 1, 9, John was a companion in tribulation. Now look at chapter 2, 9 of Revelation And you'll see that the beginning there, he tells the church, I know your works, your tribulation. I know what you're going through. You're going through a lot of trials and troubles, poverty, but really you're rich spiritually. I know the blasphemy of them which say they're Jews, and they're really not. They're the synagogue of Satan, to be a matter of fact. Fear none of those things which thou shalt, what? Suffer. You're going to suffer some things. In fact, the devil's going to cast some of you into prison that you may be tried or tested. You will have tribulation 10 days, meaning a relatively short period of time, comparatively speaking. You just be faithful for whatever amount of time you go through this tribulation. You be faithful even to the point of being willing to die for Christ, and I will give thee a crown of life. And so there was the problem of suffering there in the church in Revelation 2, 9 and 10 at Smyrna. Look at verse 13, Revelation 2. I know your works, where you dwell. He says then later in the verse, this is where Antipas, my faithful martyr, was slain among you. So there had been people losing their lives in the seven churches of Asia. Now I would like to think that no Christian at this location has lost their life because of their love for the Lord and their service to God. I hope we never reach that point in this country, but I think we need to be mindful of the fact that some things can happen that uh, we never saw coming if we're not careful. So we need to be busy about converting people to Christ to try to change this society around us. And then we've already alluded to the suffering of those under the altar They'd been slain for the word of God. It's not just Antipas. It's all of these individuals slain for the word of God. And notice they're crying out, wondering how long are we going to have to go before you judge and avenge those who shed our blood on this earth. And then here's the not so good news. Those who had already died and were under the altar are going to be joined by others their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were. That was coming. And so the seven churches of Asia, as they hear the book read before them, know there's some bad news, there's some good news. The bad news is we're going to continue to be martyred, some of us. But the good news is that we win victory in Jesus. In Revelation 13, look at this beast rising up out of the sea. He's got seven heads and ten horns. Upon his horns, there are ten crowns. And so you're depicting all these ruling officials here of this empire that is being described. And the beast is described as being like a leopard, speed and swiftness. His feet were like the feet of a bear and mouth is the mouth of a lion. You see the ferocity that is a part of this beast. Where is he getting this authority, this The dragon, Satan, is involved in this. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power to the beast. They worshiped the beast himself. And uh, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Who's he blaspheming? You'll notice he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. And it was given to this beast to make war with the saints. And his goal was to overcome them, file that away. That's what he was trying to do, trying to overcome them. But we're going to see how this turns out in just a few moments. 
The beast here is described as, as being one that had the power to determine whether you would live or die. Because look at this. To cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And what was the purpose of this mark? No man could buy or sell unless he had that mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, this is where we see the world around us religiously plunge into all kinds of wild and outlandish speculation. It's the barcode on our products, someone says. Someone else says it's this. Someone else says it's that. I want to try to simplify this. I don't know exactly what it was, but I know what it was like because I see what it's doing. If you didn't have the mark, you couldn't buy or sell in the marketplace. If you didn't have the identifying information that authorized you to buy and sell in the marketplace, then you were certainly out of luck. Now, have you ever gone to one of these theme parks? Whereas you're entering the park and you've paid your massive amount of money for your right to enter the park, they're told, you're told, look, if you have to leave the park at any point during the day, this mark that we just put on your right hand, you'll have to hold it under this uh, ultraviolet light. And when we see the mark that is there on your hand, you'll be authorized to come right back in the park without paying again. Now, I couldn't see the mark. It was not visible to my naked eye. I could not see it unless I put it under the light that made it shine. And when I did put it under the light, I could see the mark. That mark was on my hand and it meant I had the authority to enter back into that place. It was that which granted me access. In some way, shape, or form, and you get into a lot of debate about it, which we don't have time to do tonight. But in some way, shape, or form, those individuals were prohibited from buying or selling in the marketplace unless they could produce documentation which emphasized their regard for someone else to be deity besides God, likely the Roman emperor. And so you see that this was a situation that put them in a spot. What are they going to do? They can't deny God. They can't worship a man, but they need food. They need products. So Revelation 17 and verse 6 also shows the suffering This is a vivid passage. John sees this woman that appears to be drunk, but what's she intoxicated with? Notice, with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with, and when he says great admiration, he doesn't mean the word admiration here the way we use that word in 2023. He was absolutely amazed at what he saw from this woman. And the depiction of Rome as the martyring force that was killing all these, drunken with the blood of the saints. But now we're to the final part of this. That's the outcome. The outcome. I love this phrase in Revelation 12, 8 about Satan. Prevailed not. That's the story of his life, by the way. He prevailed not with Job. He thought, oh, I can get... I can bring things upon Job that will cause him to completely deny you and cancel you out, God, and that didn't work. He thought that he could get Jesus to give in to temptation, but that didn't work. Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. And so now in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, notice, they overcame him. He was supposed to try to overcome them. But they ended up overcoming him by the blood of the Lamb, says Revelation 12 and verse 11. And I love Revelation 14 and verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, not to the emperor, not to the high priest of Judaism, not to any other man. You give glory to God and worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea. The high priest didn't create the world not the high priest on earth in Jerusalem, the one sitting at the right hand of God was involved in the creation, but not the one sitting in a temple in Jerusalem. And the Roman emperor certainly did not create the world. He didn't make heaven and earth and sea and fountains of waters. You ought to give glory to God, not to any man. 
Verse 8 of Revelation 14 says, Babylon has fallen. Now, wait a minute. Wait. Babylon fell in 539 B.C. So why are we reading about it here in Revelation 14 in the first century? Because that's the name that was given as a code name for the ruling power that was persecuting God's people. They were described as being Babylon, which, uh, as you think about it, is not a compliment, knowing what we know about Babylon. She made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then uh, the third angel says with a loud voice, If any man worships the beast in his image, receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, that same person is going to drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will ascend up forever and ever. They'll have no rest day nor night. So which one would you rather be, the one who overcame him, the Roman emperor or the Jewish high priest or whoever the ruling official is by the lamb, the blood of the lamb or the one that was shedding the blood of the saints who is going to be punished for so, so doing. And now these last slides we're going to just go through very rapidly to show you that we win. There's victory in Jesus. We win. Look at it, Revelation chapter 16. Here a battle is depicted a battle of that great day of God Almighty. Where is this battle going to be fought? We'll see that in the verse 16. But notice Jesus says, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. He gather the, gathers them together in a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. It literally means hill of Megiddo. If you study the Old Testament with any real clarity of understanding about Megiddo, the place Megiddo, what you're going to notice, it becomes a place more than once of decisive battle. A place, it was located geographically in a location where roads intersected and people coming from all different directions were coming through there. And so it was a very uh, sought after location to control. And so here in Revelation 16, Megiddo is mentioned. Now, let me ask, true or false, if I mention certain battle places to you, they conjure up certain thoughts. Normandy, Waterloo, Gettysburg. I could keep going with certain battle locations that really stand out in our mind, and we know what they represent. Megiddo, to them, represented a place of decisive battle. But let's see who wins this battle. It's a figurative battle, not a literal one. They say it's all literal. Do you know that uh, Brother Guy in Woods pointed out in his book, Biblical Backgrounds of the Troubled Middle East, he points out in there that the size of the field and property that is going to be allegedly where all nations of the world will fight the bloody battle of Armageddon at the end of time is about the size of a regulation baseball diamond. And yet they're trying to depict blood up to the bridles of horses and sub, some massive battlefield. And uh, they try to depict this. What they don't understand is the figurative language here is designed to simply point this out. The battle is won by God and his people, not by those who oppose God and his people. Great Babylon comes in remembrance before God, and guess what is given to Babylon? The wrath of God, the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled. Why? Because they can't stand up to God. They can't win. Mountains, which often depict kingdoms in the Bible, are not found because they can't stand against the kingdom of God and God, the king of kings. They cannot. Revelation 19 brings us to this king of kings. We see him on a white horse. He's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he's judging and he's making war. Notice this very valiant figure depicted on the white horse. On his head is not just one crown. There are many crowns, thus signifying 
his kingship over multiple places and locations. He's not just king over one region. He's king of kings, we'll see in a moment. His name is actually called the Word of God. He's the Logos of God, as we see him depicted in John 1, 1 and following. And the armies in heaven following him on white horses are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. What is coming out of his mouth? A sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. These nations that have done so much harm to his followers, they can't stand against the one who's finally coming to conquer them. Let me ask you, when you're watching a movie where some man or some woman, as the case may be, is murdering or doing all kinds of hurtful and hateful things, a husband's constantly cheating on his wife, a wife constantly cheating on her husband, as the case may be, whatever. Someone's doing bad things, bad things, and no one ever seems to catch them doing it. And you're watching the police try to find a way to finally find the perpetrator of the crime and to bring them to justice. Let me ask you a question. Don't you finally feel a sense of celebration at least, not celebration in the sense of let's throw a party, but these victims, all these people who were murdered, you thought you got away with killing them, but you didn't. You've now been caught, and justice is about to be done. We understand that Jesus is all about making things right. He wants to save all. He has offered salvation to all. And even those who've done crimes can be reached with the gospel if they're reached before they die and can be forgiven of their crimes by the King of kings and Lord of lords. But some have not repented, never will repent. And so in this depiction, Revelation 19, the statement is made, come gather yourselves together. It's time for supper. And guess who's for dinner? You are going to be eat, devouring the flesh of kings, devouring captains, devouring mighty men. You're going to be devouring them in the sense that you're going to eat them alive. Not like cannibals, but in the sense of victory. The beast in Revelation 19, 19, and the kings of the earth and their armies, they think we're going to stop this valiant soldier on his white horse with his other armies on their white horses. We're going to win this victory and make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken. And with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which, with which he deceived them, that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image, they're depicted as finally getting what was coming to them. They're cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And all the harm that they caused, they did not get away with. We win in the end. I love Revelation 15 too. Those that had gotten victory over the beast, they're the ones being described here and they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. That's a song of victory such as we see after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 15. A song of victory and deliverance. We're free. Free from not the bondage of Egypt but free from the bondage of sin. All nations are depicted as coming and worshiping before the Holy One, and it's not the Jewish high priest, and it's not the Roman emperor. <coughs> Notice, we win Revelation 17. Oh, yeah. There are some who try to make war with the Lamb. That's not smart. The Lamb shall overcome them. He is capital L, Lord of Lords. He is capital K, King of Kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. We win. The Lamb overcomes. In Revelation 18, 20, you'll notice, rejoice, heaven, holy apostles, prophets, rejoice. Why? You remember the question that had been asked there in chapter 6, how long until you avenge us of the blood of those who shed our blood? How long? And God has avenged you. On her, Revelation 6, 9 depicts them under the altar. But in Revelation 20 and verse 4, they're no longer under the altar. They are on thrones. They're sitting on thrones. 
And notice, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, the martyrs, but what happened to them? He says, they did not worship the beast. They didn't worship his image. They didn't receive his mark on their foreheads in their hands. How'd that work out for them? Even though they were beheaded, how'd that work out for them? They lived, not here on earth. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now that's where we start seeing the figurative language. And we see it again in verse 6. Shall reign with him a thousand years. Those folks are the ones who will be priests of God. And the second death won't have any power over them. So what is this thousand years? Well, someone says it's a literal 1,000 year time period. And yet it's always amazing to see that all the other things in Revelation, especially in chapter 20, that are before we read thousand years are not taken literally. Why should we take the number literally? You know, people get into some hot water when they insist that you have to take the book of Revelation absolutely literally. And if you don't believe this, check me out on it. I can show you if I had the time when I teach this class To our students, I show them quote after quote of individuals who say all prophecy has to be taken literally. John MacArthur is among them. There are many other preachers. Every prophecy has to be taken literally. Okay, if you do that, then here's the mess that you create. In Revelation 14, 1 through 5, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder. Heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. They sung as it were a new song before the throne, before the four beasts and the elders. No man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. So let me just be loving but informational here. Jehovah's Witness organization teaches, they used to teach actually, that uh, all of the saved would go to heaven. And they used to teach that the totality of the saved was a literal 144,000 people. That was literal. They took it literally in their early years. It was in the early 1930s that someone said, "Um, we've got a problem. We have more members in our organization worldwide than 144,000. If only 144,000 are going to make it, we've got a problem. How do we tell the excess folks, uh, you're coming here for nothing, you're not going to make it? Well... A new revelation was given to them allegedly in which, ah, 144,000 constitute heavenly class. Those who are taken from the earth and they'll live forever with Christ there in heaven. But the rest of the saved will live forever in paradise on earth. And there, that gave them the chance to say, yeah, only 144,000 go into heaven, but the rest of the saved, however many that is, will live here on earth in paradise. So you're not going to lose either way, they would claim. But this is what's interesting about this to me. They say that uh, they take the Lord's Supper, by the way, one time a year, just once. And they say that only the 144,000 are permitted to partake of it on that Sunday. Now, I would suspect that there are more than 144,000 that have concluded their part of the heavenly class. And one way I know this, I studied with a, a couple one time. One of our members in Etowah, Tennessee, had gotten into some confusion because they'd been coming to her home and studying with her. And she asked if I would be willing to come and study, and I said, I would, if they'll let me, I will. She said, yeah, they'll let you. So I came to that study, and they were, I tried to get them on the plan of salvation, which is, I think, always the first go-to when it comes to these matters. But uh, they wanted to get me on a merry-go-round, and so I I just asked them this question. I said, hey, listen, uh, are you and your wife uh, part of the 144,000? 
Guess what they said? Yes, sir, we are. I said, how do you know that? Well, you pray and God tells you. And he told us that we were. I said, okay. I said, according to this text, there's no way you could be. Revelation 14, you can't be a part of the 144,000. They said, what? I said, because it says in verse 4, these are they which were not defiled with women for they are virgins. And you all have children, right? Well, yes, yes, we do. We do have children. But you don't understand. When he says they are virgins there, he's speaking figuratively about their moral purity. And I smiled lovingly and said, yes, the, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I wasn't serious when I said you, you were not part of the 144,000 based on that. I said, because that is a spiritual thing. But just as this is figurative, so is the number. How many tribes do you have in the Old Testament? Twelve. How many tribes do you have in the New Testament? How many apostles do you have in the New Testament? We have 12 tribes written to by James. That is a reference to the church itself, the, the saved, the body of believers. We have 12 apostles. 12 times 12 is 144. And when you really want to take a biblical number and amplify it, you make it, multiply it by 10 or 100, whatever the case, and you end up with 144,000, which figuratively speaking is a description of the totality of the saved. Whether Old or New Testament, it refers not literally but uh, categorically to all of the saved. And so these numbers are figurative and so are the thoughts behind them. Revelation 20. If you're going to make the number 1,000 literal, then you have to make the rest of it literal too. And if you do that, then you cannot be a part of the 1,000 year reign with Christ unless you're beheaded. Because the verse says they would be beheaded for those who had been beheaded for Jesus were the ones who would live and reign with him. If you haven't been beheaded, you can't do that. Well, again, I would not argue in that fashion because I don't take all of that in completely literal terms uh, any more than I take Psalm 50 and verse 10 completely literally. The beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, who owns the cattle on the thousand and first hill? God owns the cattle on every hill, no matter how many there are. Be mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a a thousand generations. Does he mean that literally? Or is that a number that is used to refer to the totality? And that's Deuteronomy 7, 9 as well. To a thousand generations. And when you come to Revelation 20 and verse 4, a thousand years. A complete cycle of time. They are victorious throughout. From the time they die until the time Jesus comes back again, they're living victoriously with Christ. That's the point that is being made here. And as I close, here's some things you don't see in Revelation 20, 1 through 7, that you need to see if they're telling us the truth. Revelation 20, 1 through 7 does not mention the second coming of Christ. It doesn't mention a bodily resurrection. It mentions souls that have been lifted up to be on thrones, but not a bodily resurrection in the first seven verses. It doesn't mention a reign on this earth. They lived and reigned with Christ where he was, and that was in heaven. That was something that was happening then. And then it does not mention the literal throne of David. It doesn't mention Jerusalem, the land of Palestine. It doesn't mention us. Saints of the 21st century, though we are promised also to be victorious, if we die, we're not the ones identified in Revelation 21 through 7. And it doesn't mention Christ ever being on this earth. We'll say more about that tomorrow. But Revelation 22, 18 condemns adding to the words of this book. Now, in rat-a-tat-tat fashion, I'm just going to show you that last section of verses there Revelation 2, and remember, these charts will be available for you to go back and spend your time with your own Bible, making uh, your notes and things of that nature. But I'm just going to show you the common theme of all those verses that are written to the seven churches of Asia there, and the bottom line is we win. Look at it. To him that overcometh, what? You get to eat of the tree of life. Notice, 
What does he tell them in Revelation 2.10? I'll give you a crown of life. He that overcometh will not be heard of the second death, which is the lake of fire and brimstone. We know later, Revelation 21.8. And he that overcomes to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, Revelation 3.5. And notice verse 11 says, they have a crown that no man can take. And then notice, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And that's going to be a temple that would last, not like the one in Jerusalem that could be destroyed by Roman Empire. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Yes, if you come out of the great tribulation, notice he doesn't say the great tribulation as if there's only one. These are they which came out of great tribulation. There's more than one time period that qualifies for that. They've washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the lamb. And therefore, where are they now? They are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. They hunger no more. They don't thirst anymore. Why not? The lamb in the midst of them feeds them and leads them to living fountains of waters. And God wipes away all tears from their eyes. And they have a new dwelling place. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. What does he see? He sees this coming down out of heaven. Notice he does not say it is heaven. Down. Of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And then he sees that there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All those former things are passed away. So we walk with the one that has the keys to Hades and death. Revelation 1 17 and 18. We don't have to be afraid. He has the keys of Hades and of death. And we have no fear because we know how the story ends. We know the outcome. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. They have rest from their labors. Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. I close with this and this is my final closing. In 1987, I came back from a speaking appointment on a Monday night the night of the college basketball national championship game. I grew up in Indiana, and though I was not a fan of Bobby Knight's antics, I was a fan of his team and of his discipline in coaching his team when it came to following structure. And so that night, in 1987, Coach Knight was no longer coaching them, but notice in 1987... They were uh, facing Syracuse in the national championship game. This was in the days of VCRs. I had taped the game and I was trying all night long during the intermission when they were huddled around the TV watching the game. I stayed away. I didn't want to know a thing about it. I got home. I put the VCR in rewind mode. I knew the game was over by then, but I didn't know the outcome. The outcome had already been decided. I just hadn't been made aware of it yet. And so as I'm watching this game, there are times when Indiana's falling behind by double digits. My palms are sweaty. I am thinking, oh, come on, you guys, you guys have got to come back. And sure enough, they did. And with five seconds left, approximately, Keith Smart hit a jumper from the side. It went in. Indiana wins, national champions, hip, hip, hooray. I've watched that game many times since then. Never with sweaty palms. Not a single time. I already know when we fall behind, in the end, we win. I know the outcome, so I don't have to live in fear. Friends, you and I know the outcome. We don't have to live in fear. Tomorrow morning, we'll be talking about the rapture during the worship service hour. And then we'll be talking uh, in the Bible class hour, what will not happen at the end of time. 
And then for the afternoon PM service, we'll be talking about what will happen at the end of time. Thank you for your very patient attention tonight, for your presence here tonight. I love you very much. Thank you for being here and loving God's word tonight. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.